Thank you. So it's it's good to sub in for Dave in the so he can go so he can go be with his grandbaby. It's really hard to believe that Dave is a grandparent. Because my office used to be next to his at TBC, and I still can't just imagine him being a grandparent. So has Dave settled on a grandparent name? Like, what does he call himself? Granddad? So he went with granddad. So because that's, like, not in vogue anymore. It's, it's in vogue to say, like, I'm Poppy or I'm Papa, right? Things like that. So people don't like to embrace their age, but I say, hey, go for it. Just embrace it. So I'm glad that he decided to stick with tradition. Um, so it's really good to be with you, especially on a weekend where we all got one hour less of sleep. So everyone doing okay this morning? Um, so, uh, normally I set two alarms when I preach to make sure I don't miss it. And last night, especially because of the time change and something happened with my iPhone where it didn't change time in the middle of the night. And so it was good that I had that second alarm set or I may not have been here on time this morning. So, um, Dave asked if I could preach a sermon from uh, John 14 as part of your series, and your series, of course, being called Talking with God. And uh, now, sometimes whenever you bring in a guest preacher, they agree to talk about something, and then they just talk about whatever they want. And uh, the beginning of my sermon might sound like that, but we're going to get to prayer eventually, more toward the end here. So I went back and listened to the first two weeks of the series that you're in right now. And I noticed that Dave is now preaching 45 minutes, and I'm not sure I can be that interesting. So um, I, I, can tr- I, can shoot, I can be 30 minutes interesting. We'll shoot for that this morning. Uh, so you began a, a series on, uh, two weeks ago on prayer, and I especially loved hearing Dave's talk from Psalm 42 and 43 on lament and um, uh, how to express sadness through prayer. At TVC, we're going to be starting a couple of new series in the coming months one on prayer, and one on the Psalms in the summertime. So I actually pointed our lead teaching pastor, hey, listen to Dave's the, the sermon at, at Grace Bible Church. is kind of a guide for us to even possibly go by. So I loved what you all talked about last week, really challenged by it. But today we're going to be in John chapter 13. So go ahead and ch- turn to John 13 and 14. We'll be there this morning. And we're looking, I want to take a step back. John 13 through 17 is known as the Upper Room Discourse. And Jesus is hours away from death, and he's with 11 of the disciples because Jesus has already left to betray him. And these are his last words to his disciples before he goes to the cross. And so before we step into the passage, I, wanna see, I want you to see the big picture of what's happening in all of 13 through 17. What is Jesus doing? Well, he's really getting his disciples uh, ready to live in the world after he departs. He's preparing them. And if he's showing them how to live in the world in his absence, then this is what you and I can learn as well as we look at the whole upper room discourse. You can look at, it really answers the question, how does God want us to live in the world today? And so that's kind of a big picture look at the upper room discourse. But if you like simple outline for sermons, here's my really simple outline today. I am going away. You're going to stay. And I will send you the Holy Spirit. And I, and I couldn't make that last part rhyme. I tried, but couldn't pull it off. And so look at with me in, in verse 36 of chapter 13. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay my life down for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay your life down for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me 
three times. Now, if you remember what happened right before this passage, if you go back in the text a little bit further, after Judas leaves, Jesus says a statement. He says, now is the Son of Man glorified. And he's talking about his coming death. And he then goes on to say, where I am going, you cannot come. Then he gives us the new commandment. He says, love one another as I have loved you. And he says, everyone will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And Jesus says all these really important statements that most of us have probably memorized by now. And then, but Peter misses all of it. And he focuses in on one statement that Jesus says in verse 33, where I'm going, you cannot come. Now, this statement shouldn't be a surprise because Jesus said something similar in chapters 7 and 8. But Peter responds, where are you going? And Jesus clarifies a little bit. And he says, where I'm going, you cannot follow, but you will follow later. And then Peter says, well, why not? I will lay my, I'll lay my life down for you. And then Jesus makes the famous prediction that Peter would deny him three times before morning. We've come to expect this kind of brashness and boldness from Peter. But you have to remember, the disciples are still young in their faith at this point. If you look, if you look at some of the Jesus films, like a lot of the Jesus films where the disciples are depicted, they're always depicted as having these long gray beards. And that wasn't the reality. They were probably in their late teens or early 20s. They probably had some peach fuzz, the disciples. And so they're, they're pretty young in their faith. Whenever we think of Peter, we think of one who wrote First and Second Peter. We think of the one crucified in Rome upside down. We think of Peter as this pillar in the Christian faith, and, and, in, and in many ways he was. But do you know how much time passed between this moment with Jesus and Peter's death? We're talking about 30 years of time. I work primarily with high school students and people that are young in their faith. And people young in their faith often make great predictions about what they will do for Jesus, like Peter is doing here. I think D.A. Carson says it well. He says, sadly, good intentions in a secure room after good food are far less attractive in a darkened garden with a hostile mob. At this point, Peter's intentions and self-assessment vastly outstrip his strength. If you remember a few minutes later, Peter's going to, in a bold, brash move, going to try to cut off someone's ear who's trying to arrest Jesus. And then just a few moments later after that, what does he do? He denies Jesus. He denies him. So Peter overestimates the strength of his faith. And I think you and I, we all do this, especially in our youth. Peter's statement, I'll give my life for you. What's profound to me in this story is that Peter's statement, I'll give my life for you. That statement would not stand up over the next few minutes, but it would over the next 30 years. And so it's a reminder for us that what's in play in the Christian life is the long game. What matters is the long game. And so we should take great comfort in this reality. We find comfort knowing that Jesus picked a traitor in Judas, a doubter in Thomas, and a denier in Peter. If you're someone that just struggles with sort of the, the fits and starts of the Christian faith, and you're hitting snags and you're struggling, you should find great comfort just knowing who Jesus picked as his first 12. 
and knowing that um, what matters for us is the long game, not the short game. So Peter has no ability in his own strength to follow through on this statement. He says he'll give his life for Jesus, but it's not until Jesus gives his life for Peter and then sends the Holy Spirit that Peter's able to give his life for the gospel. This should serve as another reminder for us that the only, the only true hero in the Bible is God. I know we often look at people, put them on a pedestal, and we, we see them as heroes of the faith, and in some ways they are, but the only true hero of the the only true hero in the Bible is God Himself. And so this story, I think, points to that reality. Look with me at verse chapter 14, verse 1. Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. So why would their hearts be troubled? Well, let's just recap some things that Jesus has said. He's told them he's going to go away. He's told them he's going to die. One of the 12 was a traitor. Peter's going to die him three times. Satan's at work against them, and they're all going to fall away from their faith. That's what he says to them. So they're going to be a little worried about that. They're a little fearful. So I want you to see how practical the Scriptures can be for us. How many of you struggle with fear and anxiety? Raise your hand. Raise it high. Be proud. Yes. How many of you think no one struggles with it like I do? Raise your hand. Get it up there. Now, how many of you are afraid to admit that? (laughs) So for many of us, fear can be paralyzing and debilitating. Fear and anxiety are a little bit different. Um, Fear usually has an object. So where my parents live in Virginia, they live in a rural section of Virginia, kind of close to Washington, D.C. But when I was growing up, I don't ever remember seeing a bear, hearing about bears. It just wasn't a thing. But there's been this weird bear migration where in the last 10 or so years, they're seeing bears. They're actually having bear sightings. They're seeing bear tracks. And my parents will say, yeah, we saw bear tracks out in the field just by our house. And I'm picturing myself and my kids. We go to visit about twice a year. And I'm picturing myself being in the woods with my kids where I used to play as a kid and just running into a bear. And so if I were to run into a bear in person in this way, of course, I'm going to be fearful. My fear, fear always has an object. But anxiety is a little bit different. Anxiety can be a little more confusing. Anxiety can be just a cloud that just kind of hangs over you, and you're not quite sure what the source of it is, more vague and abstract. But fear almost always has an object. And in the story here, for these disciples, their fear has an object because Jesus has said some really troubling things. But when Jesus says, do not be afraid, he's, he always follows it with a faith command. I think it's an encouragement to us. We don't just fight fear by trying harder. We fight it with faith. And it's not just faith in faith. And it's not just faith in a plan, but it's faith in a person. It's faith in God himself. You might say it like this. I can trust the plan of God because I can trust the person of God. So I want you to see this morning, don't miss the personal nature of faith. God wants us to trust him. And he says here, he says, believe in God, believe also in me. Put your faith and trust in me. This implies 
that whenever we struggle with fear and doubt and lack of trust, it is the person of God that we're not trusting. And so as you continue in this series on prayer, don't miss the personal nature of God. I want you to see this morning the character of the one that we get to pray to. That's my goal this morning, is I want you to see the character and the nature of the one that we get to commune with and pray to this morning. Look with me at verse 2. Jesus says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. There are many misconceptions about this passage. Some translations use the word mansion instead of rooms. When I was a kid, I always heard people say, you're going to have this mansion in heaven. So, spoiler alert, room is a better translation, so you're getting a room, not a mansion. All right? So I grew up hearing this statement when I was a kid. If God created everything in six days and he spends over 2,000 years on heaven, how great is my mansion going to be? People said those kinds of things when I was growing up. That's the wrong focus. It's the wrong focus. The focus should be, you and I get to live with the Father. We get to be present with him. You see, in that day, when a Jewish son got married, they would build a room onto the dad's house, and that's where the young couple would live. Doesn't that sound kind of awkward? I don't think I would appreciate that in today's culture. But the picture, this is the picture that's being painted here. But the picture is that we get to be present with God. Whenever you and I think of heaven, most of us value place over person. We value the place over the person. And we ask things like, little kids will ask things like, you know, what's heaven going to be like? And we as adults get caught up in describing, well, there's going to be this, there might be this, there might be this. And we get caught up in the place over the person when it comes to heaven. But when you really think about it, we don't really even do that here on this earth. So for, for my students, whenever we plan an event, I've noticed something over the years. The event itself is secondary. They want to know something before they go to an event. What do they want to know? They want to know who is going to be there. And if their friends aren't going, they're not going. We could plan the most expensive block party, just blow out, and if their friends aren't there, they're not coming. It doesn't matter what the place looks like. If their friends aren't present with them there, they're not showing up. And so I think back to a a mission trip a couple years ago. I take students every year to New York on a mission trip. And two years ago was by far the most just close-knit and tiger I've ever taken on this trip. And the place that we go and stay is not that nice. It's not that great. But we spend just hours downstairs in the basement of this place that we, after we serve all day and we're just exhausted. And they're just staying up late. They're playing games. They're just fellowshipping together. And it's just a really, really amazing environment. And what I'm reminded of there is we get caught up with our friends. We focus with our people here on this earth. 
we get caught up with being just present with them. Place is secondary. We just enjoy the fellowship of being with people that we love and care for. And so, moments like this are just foretastes of what's to come. And so, if, if we value presence over place in the here and now on this earth, then why would it be any different with God? So with God, it has to be presence over place. And if you think back on the most joyous moments here on this earth, it's always more about relationship than anything else. You see, there's a lot of, there's a lot of lonely rich people out there. So why would heaven be about place? We see this in verse 3. He says, I will come again and take you to myself. And what's the emphasis here in that passage? He wants us present. He wants us present with him. It's presence over place. So imagine all the trappings of heaven without the presence of God. Well, it wouldn't be heaven. What makes heaven so special is the presence and person of God. So what does Jesus mean when he says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, and again, when I was growing up, I always heard that passage taught as, you know, they think of it as construction. Like he's going and preparing a place, and so he's he's building something. It's construction. And remember, he was a carpenter, so it's going to be good. And so I I want you to hear this. The preparing that he's talking about is not about the wooden nails of carpentry. You see where this is going? But it's about the wooden nails of a cross. That's the preparing that he's talking about. The cross is how he prepares the way. And he's just hours from going to that cross, and he's the one bringing comfort to his people, to his disciples. Many of you know that at TBC, we just walked through a really, really tough time with losing our lead pastor of 38 years, Gary DeSalvo, to cancer. And what I noticed about him over the course of the last several years is he would often be the one that was comforting us while he was the one dying of cancer. And if we were talking with him about just life in general or even about his own situation, and we might start to get a little bit emotional talking about it in front of him, and, which is always hard. And, uh, and you could just tell that he wanted to bring us comfort in the midst of He's the one afflicted with cancer, but he's bringing us comfort as he's the one heading towards death. And this is really kind of what Jesus is doing here. He's the one comforting his disciples as he's about to go to the cross. And so he brings comfort to them before he dies. And at first, when Jesus says these words, it looks like he's just changing the subject. Like, don't fear. Now let's talk about heaven. But what's their fear? Well, their fear is that he's leaving and they're no longer going to be present with him. And so how does he bring comfort to them? Well, he reminds them, I'm going to be present with you again. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, but I'm also coming back. And he'll be present with me once again in the future. Listen, the greatest antidote to fear is that one day you and I will be in the fully perfect presence of God. And that's what makes heaven, heaven. It's presence over place. Look down with me at verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, 
we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So Thomas raises a logical question. You say you're going, you say you're going somewhere. You tell us we know the way. How can we know the way if we don't know where you're going? That's a fair question. And we live in a GPS world. Everyone knows you can't know the way unless you first know the destination. And so Thomas is stumped. But do you see what Jesus is doing here? The word know in the Greek is present tense, not future. And so how do they know the way? Well, they know the way because they know Jesus. This is one of the most quoted statements Jesus ever made. And it's often used when people say there are many pathways to God, or all religions are the same, or they all kind of lead to the same place. When people start making pluralistic statements about religion in general, Christians like to use this verse to plop down as a proof text to say, no, this verse says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so we plop that down. And listen, it does relate to that, but I want to show you how it does. It, it doesn't relate in the same way that you might think it does. But it does relate. We'll show you how we, how we get there. This is, that's not really the context that he's speaking into here because Jesus is talking with 11 Jewish disciples, and they believed in one God. They didn't believe in many gods. So what would they see as the way to the Father? Well, they would see obedience to the law as the way to the Father. Earning salvation through works. So when Jesus says, I am the way, it's a statement about Old Testament fulfillment that all of the law and promises pointed to him. And he's the fulfillment of that. And so can we apply that to other world religions? We can because other world religions are works-based. I think of back to our New York trip we did a couple years ago again. We take our students to a, a Sikh temple at least once while we're there, and they get to hear from some of the gurus in this place about their faith, and we get to share some things about our faith at this location. And every year, I'm, I'm really blown away at how our students walk away with this understanding of a different world religion, and they walk outside on the sidewalk. We do some debrief time outside, and every year we visit, my students observe how works-based this religion is, and how unapologetic the people we talk to at this place, how they just say, yeah, here's what we do. And they don't say works-based salvation, but the whole thing is just a works-based system. And they're just unapologetic about it. And my students walk away and just go, man, it's, it's like so obvious that like, you don't see how this system is so contrasted against the grace-based ideas of Christianity. And so it gives them a, a new, new understanding of their own faith as they contrast it with a faith that is a works-based system. And so this statement Jesus makes does apply, of course, to other world religions because they're all works-based. But if you keep in mind the context, Jesus is getting his disciples ready for his absence. And he's bringing them comfort, but getting them ready to face all kinds of temptations that will come their way. So Leon Morris 
says this, I am the way, said one who would shortly hang impotent on a cross. I am the truth when the lives of evil people were about to enjoy a spectacular triumph. I am the life when within a matter of hours his corpse would be placed in a tomb. Everything that's about to happen will seem counter to all that Jesus has said. And so Jesus says this on the eve of his crucifixion. They're going to be tempted towards all kinds of lies, and the cross will look like the greatest defeat. And Jesus says, don't believe it. All kinds of lies are going to be spoken about him. And Jesus says, don't believe them. It's going to seem like I'm dead, but I'm coming back. And so look with me at at verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe in me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Now, Philip does something that many of us are tempted to do. He says, give us proof. And you can hear the sadness in Jesus' words, just the exasperation. How can you say that, Philip? Haven't I told you that I and the Father are one? And it's this last statement, believe on account of the works themselves. You see, the miracles that Jesus did were not just like divine tricks to prove he was God. The miracles themselves were meant to be a spiritual picture of a reality he was trying to point him to. So when you think of him healing blind men and giving, this is a picture of giving sight spiritually. Multiplying the loaves was pointing to him being the bread of life. Raising up Lazarus meant that Jesus himself is the life. And so the miracles were more than just divine tricks. They're meant to point to Jesus himself as the fulfillment of all the law pointed to. So we can't miss that. Now look down with me in, at verse 12. Now this section is about prayer, all right? He says, truly, truly, I say to you. Next slide, actually. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these he will, will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So, in verse 12, what is he saying? We'll do greater works than Jesus did? What's he talking about? This doesn't mean the disciples are going to perform greater miracles, but it refers to their reach. Their ministry is going to go worldwide, and Jesus just stayed in Palestine. In the book of Acts, Peter preaches, and 3,000 people get saved. That never happened to Jesus. They're going to reach beyond the Jewish community to the Gentiles, and Jesus never did that. So in that sense, they will do greater works than even Jesus did himself. And in verses 13 and 14, there are some people that think that prayer is like a genie in a bottle. And they think of this idea of if you pray in his name, like, like some magical incantation to, to bring God in your favor. So to pray in his name means to ask for things that give him glory. We pray for things that Jesus would sign his name to. We pray for things like the lost. We pray for his church. We pray for our own sanctification and growth. 
And so these are the things that Jesus would sign his name to. We pray for those things. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, in answering the question, what is prayer, says it like this. Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. We pray for things that are agreeable to his will. Does this mean that we can't pray for things that we desire? I don't think it, it means that necessarily, as long as the desire itself isn't sinful. There are many things we can pray for that may be linked to a desire in our hearts. So if you're single, want to be married, it's fine to pray that God sends you a godly spouse. If you don't have kids and you want kids, it's fine to pray for those things. If you're thinking about how to move from your, your, your current career to a different career, it's fine to ask God for provision. There's nothing wrong with that. As long as we're not praying for sinful things, it's fine to pray for some of the things, some of the desires that God has placed within your heart. I think back when I was uh, finishing up high school, I had this dream to play college soccer. Now, I wasn't, I wasn't that good, but I could have maybe, maybe played D3, maybe, on the bench. And that was my dream. And so I had, I put all my eggs in that one basket. I had this, this school I wanted to go to, and I tried really hard to get into this school, but I got the rejection letter. And so now it was plan B. I didn't really have a plan B. And I look back on my life and I think, you know, what if God had given me just what I had desired at the time? What would life look like for me now? And I look back on that situation, and I think, if God had given me the thing that I wanted, which was to play college soccer at the time, that would have completely altered the course of my life. And I would never have responded to an invitation to come to Texas to intern at a church. That wouldn't have happened. I wouldn't have met my wife, most likely, and had the kids that I have now. And so I think back on the, those situations, the things... Whenever I thought I knew what was best, and, and God shut a door and didn't give me what, was it wrong to pray for those things? Or No, not necessarily, but God had a different plan. And so Tim Keller says it like this, God will either give us what we ask or give us what we would have asked if we knew everything he knew. We pray for things that Jesus would sign his name to. And we can pray according to desire as long as it's not sinful. But we pray for things in his name that he would sign his name to. That's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. So I want to remind you of the big picture in this passage here. This passage is about the presence of Jesus. This is who you and I get to pray to. It's who we get to commune with. And these men, they're worried because he's no longer going to be present with them. And he says he goes to prepare a place where they're going to be present with him again, and he provides a way through the cross and the resurrection. And then lastly, he challenges them to be present in the world in the way that he's been with them. Again, I think you and I, we don't, we don't really value the presence of God like we should. We don't really see the beauty of it. 
Jonathan Edwards addresses this in his sermon, The Excellency of Christ. And he says, he says, the reason Jesus had such impact on people, because Jesus combines traits or virtues that we would never expect to be combined in the same person. Most of the time, there are traits and virtues that if you have one, it tends to push out the other, push the other one out. But Jesus is divine and human, so he combines these virtues. And here's what those things look like. In Jesus Christ, we see high majesty, yet deep humility. Strong sense of justice, yet infinite mercy. Tenderness, yet with no weakness. Boldness without any harshness. Humility without any uncertainty. Unbending conviction, yet totally approachable. Insisting on truth, yet bathed in love. Power without insensitivity. Integrity without rigidity. Passion without prejudice. He's divine and human. He's a lion and a lamb. This is the sheer beauty and excellency of Christ. And the disciples don't fully understand that yet. This is who you and I get to be present with for eternity. And this is who wants us in his presence. If you're sitting in here this morning and you're just curious, you're just exploring the Christian faith, maybe just checking things out, I want to speak to you for a moment and remind you that this is the God who wants to be present with you. He wants you in his presence. He is inviting you into his presence. This God is gracious and merciful, and he wants you in his presence, and he wants you to know him. He doesn't just want us to know things about him. He wants us to know him. So this morning, we're going to partake in communion. What better way to celebrate the presence of God than taking communion together? And so worship team, you guys go ahead and come on up. If there's anything I want you to, the main thing I want you to understand from the text this morning is this idea. This is who we get to be present with for eternity. And so my hope and prayer is, is it, as you see the character and the nature of who God is, that that would begin to infuse your prayer life and change how you pray as you recognize who you and I get to be present with for eternity. And so as we worship together and take communion, I pray you reflect on the excellency of Christ that one day we will, we will fully be in his presence, in his full in perfect presence. Psalm 34, 8 says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. God, we thank You that You're inviting us into a relationship with you so that we can one day be present with you fully and finally. God, so often you seem so distant. And that's, that's our failure. It's not your failure, it's our failure. God, help us to see you as available Help us to see you in all of your glory, in all of your beauty, in all of your excellency. 
God, I pray that just knowing your nature and knowing your character would remind us how amazing you are. And that would change how we pray to you, how we talk to you. That knowing your character and knowing your nature would change how we communicate with you. That you're available to us and want to be present with us. And you are bringing us into full and final perfect presence with you one day. We thank you and we praise you this morning, Father. We pray this in your name. Amen.